with you. Sherry might need it in a little while. How are y'all? Good to see you today. Thank you, Joanne, for sharing with us. Um, I grew up in a Wesleyan church. You say, what in the world is a Wesleyan church? Um, well, the Wesleyan church is a denomination kind of like the Nazarenes around here, kind of like perhaps your Southern Baptist even might be. Um, it kind of felt like that on Sunday morning. Probably feels a lot like Hebron does today. Um, our theology with where I grew up and where I'm leading right now is very, very similar. But they had a few quirks in the Wesleyan church, and one of their quirks was that they didn't baptize anybody. They didn't baptize anybody. Didn't they ever read the Bible? Well, these folks had this thing about how you don't have to be baptized to be saved. And so we're going to show the world that you don't have to be baptized to be saved by not baptizing anybody. And um, anyhow, that was a tradition that I grew up in. And so um, no doubt you grew up in some tradition, uh, perhaps a Presbyterian church or Methodist church or something. And some of what we do here with regards to baptism may be a little bit different than what you experienced uh, where you grew up. And so my aim today in talking about the subject of baptism is to come to some understanding of what it means, what is baptism all about, why is it placed in the scriptures, and then also how was it done. And so I want to cut through all of the tradition that, is, uh, that we were raised with, uh, perhaps you know, whatever that might have been for you, and just teach what does the Bible have to say about this most important subject of baptism. Sound fair enough? All right, so that, well, you, all were, you, you weren't too sure about that, but we'll see how we go here. Um, one of the texts that I'll be using today comes from Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Let's stand together and read from God's Word. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Here we go, the words of Paul to the Christians in Rome. He writes to them, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to come back to those verses here in just a little while. Y'all hang on to them. My format today is going to be, because of the topic, it's going to be a little bit more question and answer. So we're going to be bouncing around different passages of Scripture to answer these really important questions about baptism. Um, the first question that I want to tackle is about the mode of baptism and what manner should a person be baptized. Um, a, the word baptism comes from the Greek word baptizo. I have a slide here for you that shows you that. Um, and the word baptizo actually means to wash, but it's more specific than that. It means literally to immerse, to put something under the water for the purpose of washing it. Uh, now, when the translators of the New Testament came to the word baptizo in the Greek text, instead of translating the word into English, instead of writing immerse or to wash, which is what they should have done because it would have uh, alleviated a lot of confusion about this subject matter, instead they invented a whole new English word. Uh, what they did was, instead of translating the word to immerse, baptizo to immerse, they transliterated the word. And we see this in a couple other occasions in the New Testament. Um, that word transliterate means that they literally took the, the way that the word baptizo sounds and they pl placed it in English letters according to how it would have sounded in Greek. And so they created a new word, baptism or baptize. They put the English endings on it, the English verb endings on it. And so they created this new word which means that instead of, trans, instead of, instead of translating baptizo, um, they, they transliterated it. Um, and so if they had translated it, then that means that John the Baptist's name would have really been John the Immerser. 
You ever think about that? Or John the Washer. Um, that's what John's name would have been. That's what people would have called him back in that day. Anyhow, the, um, the root meaning of the word um, informs us that when it comes to washing people with water, we follow the biblical method, and that biblical method is to immerse or to dunk a person under the water, just like what the word, baptizo, is indicating for us to do. Let me show you several places in Scripture where baptisms occur, and this is the method that we see in the Scriptures. Mark chapter 1 and verse 10, this is Jesus at his own baptism. It says, verse 10, when Jesus came up out of the water, right, came up out of the water, immediately it says he saw the heavens being torn open. Now, does that sound like a person who just got sprinkled with some water? No, he came up out of the water, he'd gone under it, and now he comes up out of it. Acts chapter 8, verses 37 and 39, Philip baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch. The eunuch says, verse 37, after he hears the gospel, well, hey, here's some water, right? Let's stop right here. Let's do this right now. Verse 38, and the eunuch commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and Philip immersed him, baptized him, and then verse 39, and when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. The text says that he went down into the water, and then he came up out of the water. The clear indication here of the text, especially keeping with the, with the meaning of the word baptizo, is that he was immersed. He went completely under the water and came back up out of it. Um, I think it is important for us also to note, when we're talking about the subject matter, is that in the Greek language, there is a word for sprinkle. And on this occasion, the New Testament writers chose not to use that word. It's the word um, rentizo. Um, it's found in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 21, among many other places in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 21. It says, In the same way Moses rentizoed or sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. This is a word picture of Moses sprinkling the blood from the sacrificial animal upon the tent of meeting, upon the, uh, the elements inside, the furnishings inside the tent of meeting before he'd go in to visit with God. It was this idea that he would come in and he would flick the blood, he would sprinkle the blood upon all of these um, different furnishings. But again, and the New Testament writers had that word at their disposal. They had rantizo at their disposal, but instead they chose to use a word that meant to wash by immersion. You say, Gordon, I got a question for you. Does that mean that sprinkling is wrong? Does that mean that if somebody has been sprinkled by baptism that that was incorrect, that it doesn't count? I would not go that far. All it means is that at Hebron, we try to adhere as closely as we can to what the biblical model is, and the baptism by immersion is the, being the biblical model. That's what we practice here. Now, you can get very legalistic about this and say, well, no, somebody has to be dunked because that's what they did in the New Testament. Well, take, for example, a different issue. Take, for example, the issue of communion. Communion, Jesus had one cup, didn't he? And they all drank from the same cup. And he had one loaf of bread, and he broke that bro loaf of bread, and all of them ate from that one loaf of bread. Well, friends, if we're going to stick to exactly the way it was done and the way Jesus instituted it, then we all need to be drinking from the same cup, and we need to be eating from the same piece of bread. Well, that became a real issue on the frontier. When back in the late, early 1800s, um, the pioneers, a lot of the men, you know, chewing tobacco. And by the time that chalice had made its way around the church, there were chunks of stuff floating in the, in the cup, right? And there was juice running down the side of the cup. I know this is disgusting, but really, I was reading about this this past week. And so what they decided to do was to say, hey, you know what, maybe we'll have multiple cups, right? 
And, uh, but then some of the people who were really legalistic said, no, 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 you've got to have one cup because Jesus only had one cup, and that's the way he did it, and they were called the one-cuppers, right? And so, but then they had the multi-cuppers. And so everybody was in this big uh, back and forth about all of it with, legalism, with regard to legalism. Um, same thing with baptism. Sure, the church has adopted multiple modes or methods, but here again, because there's no hygienic deterrent, right? And because we live in a place where there's ample supply of water, we baptize by immersion here at Hebron. Second question, what does baptism symbolize and what is the meaning of baptism? Flip over in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2 and verse 12. Paul creates a word picture here for us of baptism and the actual act of it. Paul writes, having been buried with Jesus in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith. So when a person goes under the water, Paul says it symbolizes their death and their burial with the Lord Jesus. And then when they come up out of the water, it symbolizes their raising up with Christ to new life. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4 that we read a few moments ago. Again, Paul paints this picture of what baptism symbolizes of the meaning of it. Paul writes, verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That is, into his burial, right? Going down. Verse 4, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, down into the water, in order that, just as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of God the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So what does baptism mean? What does baptism symbolize? Well, it symbolizes our participation in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The song says, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the waters of baptism. It's not what it says. The song says, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Friends, there's no magic in the water. The water doesn't wash away your sins. The blood of Jesus washes away your sins. It's a symbol. It is an act of you participating in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It is a, and that's, that is a symbolic act. Now, if you, there are a few traditions, though, that teach that there is magic in the water. And that when you go down under the water, uh, that the saving grace of God, the justifying grace of God, is then applied to your life. Um, the Catholic Church is one of those. If you grew up in the Catholic tradition, you may be aware that they view baptism as the means by which God imparts his saving grace to you as a sinner. Uh, quoting from Ludwig Ott, he's a renowned Catholic theologian, he writes, baptism is that sacred or is that sacrament in which man being washed with water in the name of the three divine persons is spiritually reborn. It happens in that moment, the Catholic Church would say, but there's a problem with that. Paul wrote Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, for it is by grace that you've been saved, not by, not by observing some ritual act, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, verse 9, not by works. Um, lest anyone should boast. In other words, not by checking off some religious ritual and saying, I observed that, I did that, and therefore because I did that, I'm, I'm cleansed. Religious observances don't save anyone. The blood of Jesus is what does that work. You say, Gordon, I've got another question for you. How old should a person be when they get baptized? Fair enough. That's a good question. I think that's a really good question. After Peter's sermon at Pentecost, um, Acts chapter 2 and verse 41, the Bible says, So those who received his word were baptized. 
notice that they said that it says that they received Peter's word. And so implied in that verse is that they understood in their mind what it was that Peter, what the message was, the message about forgiveness of sins. Other examples, um, in other words, that they can comprehend what he was saying. Other examples, Acts chapter 8 and verse 12, when Philip preached the gospel in Samaria, we read verse 12, but when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Notice the phrase, when they believed. Again, implied in the text is that they understood the message that Philip was sharing. It implied in the text is that they, they comprehended uh, this idea that they had a sin problem that only Jesus could fix. Friends, how do you have to receive Peter's words? How, or how old do you have to be to receive Peter's words? How old do you have to be to comprehend Philip's message? How old do you have to be to understand that you have a sin problem? How old do you have to be to know that Jesus Christ is the solution to that sin problem? Well, we can all agree that babies can't know that. Small children, perhaps not. Uh, but we, it would be, uh, you know, that would be rare. From my own observation, I would say that school-aged children can comprehend that they have a sin problem and that Jesus is the solution to that sin problem. But even in that scenario, it varies from one child to the next, from one church to the next. And it's this kind of ambiguity, friends, that makes it very just impossible almost to say, well, at this age, this is the point when somebody can be baptized. You say, okay, Gordon, fair enough, but what about infant baptism? Well, we've already established that the candidate for baptism needs to have some comprehension of their sinfulness and some comprehension of Jesus as the solution to their sin problem. But babies don't have that. And so here at Hebron, we don't baptize babies. You say, well, then why do some churches baptize babies? Well, take, for example, the Methodist church, of which I used to be a pastor in a Methodist church and attended a seminary where they graduated out a lot of Methodist pastors. The Methodist church teaches that when a baby is baptized, that the Holy Spirit of God is activated in the life of that child for the purpose of trying to woo that child into a relationship with God. That is to bring upon that child a sense of a need for repentance of their sin. And so the Holy Spirit is activated in that child's life at the moment of the infant being baptized. John Wesley had a fancy name for this. It was called prevenient grace. It's the grace that comes before the moment when somebody actually makes a decision to follow Jesus. But what you'll notice is that not even John Wesley thought that when that baby was baptized, that that baby was guaranteed for salvation, that that baby, that that was like the moment that that child's sins were forgiven. John Wesley never thought, taught that, never believed that. There was no guarantee placed on that child's life that they were going to make a decision for the Lord Jesus. It only inaugurated the activity of the Holy Spirit in that child's life. Now, the problem with that whole setup is that it's getting the cart before the horse. Right? You're baptizing a person before they've made a decision for Jesus. And the scripture knows nothing of that. Baptism in the Bible always comes after, in every single instance, always comes after a person has made a decision to have Jesus as the Lord of their life and ask him for the forgiveness of their sins. Let me say that again. Baptism in the Bible always comes after a person looks to Jesus to have their sins forgiven. Always after, never before. You say, well, what about when it says in Scripture that a new convert's whole household was baptized? Maybe you've heard somebody make an argument about that. 
I mean, couldn't that have included babies, right? Somebody's whole household was, was baptized. Maybe, that would, maybe they had some small children, maybe even some babies in there. How do you explain that? Well, let's look at one of those, Acts chapter 16 and verse 30. This is the story of the Philippian jailer. Paul and Silas were thrown in prison. There's an earthquake. The jail doors are opened up, and uh, the prison guard comes, and he sees all these prison doors opened up, and he thinks to himself, well, that's the end of me, because if you lose your prisoners, then you die. And so he's getting ready to jump on his sword, and uh, Paul and Silas holler out from the prison, no, 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 don't do that. We're still in here. Um, and so Paul shares the gospel with the guy. The guy receives the Lord Jesus. Um, and then the jailer says, Acts chapter 16 and verse 30, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Verse 31, they say, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Verse 32, key verse here. And they spoke the word of the Lord to the jailer and to all who were in his house. Verse 33, and he took Paul and Silas that same hour, took them home, uh, washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all of his family. Friends, it says that Paul shared the gospel with the jailer's family. Going back to what we already said earlier, that means that they, it implied in that is that they comprehended what they heard. You follow me? For Paul to share the message of the gospel with his whole family, that means that his whole family, everybody that heard it, understood, and then they responded to that. Um, and so it's this, so where this whole household concept appears in Scripture, um, it's in every single scenario, whether it's Paul that's preaching or whether it's Peter that's preaching, um, all of their audiences comprehend what it is that they hear, this message of the gospel, and then they respond to it and are baptized. Again, here at, C at Hebron, we simply don't baptize babies because they have no comprehension of the basic facts necessary and because baptism always in the scriptures comes after evidence of saving faith, never before. All right, last question is the big one. The one you knew I, you were waiting on, you were hoping I was going to answer this one. It's the, it's the question of, do you have to be baptized to be saved? Is baptism necessary for salvation? Well, flip over in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19. Jesus is talking to his disciples, giving them some final words of instruction, a charge, if you will. And he tells them, verse 19, he says, Go forth into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here's my question to you. Does Jesus anticipate does Jesus expect that his followers will be baptized? You nod your head. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty apparent, pretty clear there in the text. It's not, a, it's not some optional thing. It's a command. He sends his disciples out to go and do this. Um, Jesus expects that everybody who hears the message will come forward and will be baptized. Friends, we could argue all day long about whether or not you have to be baptized to be saved, and theologians are still arguing about that today. But that's missing the point. The point is that Jesus commanded us to be baptized. It is a simple matter of obedience. That's the point. Well, um, that's our question and answer with this topic today. And so that means it's time to ask our most important question. What difference does all this make to my life? Say, Gordon, thanks for the theological lesson I appreciate all the tension that you just created and the conversations I'm going to have to have over lunch today. What difference does all this make to me? 
uh, about four years ago, I was out mowing grass, and my wedding ring started pinching on my finger. And uh, I took it off, and I put it on my pinky finger. And when I got done mowing, it was gone. Bye-bye. I crawled around that yard, hands and knees, literally for hours, at least two hours, hands and knees all over that yard, in the pine straw, in the bushes, all through the grass, looking for my wedding ring. And it, had, it was gone. I could not find it. That was about four years ago. Several years went by, and I had this growing sense of guilt that I needed to have a wedding ring. I mean, I had had my wedding ring off for so long that I didn't even have the little, you know, the little skinny part going on anymore. My finger had recovered fully. Um, and so I, I wanted the world to know that I loved my wife, that I trusted my wife, and that I was committed to being with her. Well, just like a wedding ring, baptism is a symbol. It is meant to show the world that you love and trust and are committed to the Lord Jesus. Baptism is a statement to everyone who sees it that I have trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins, for my salvation, and I'm committed to living for him. When I was uh, 14 or 15 years old, the church that I grew up in, that Wesleyan church, they built a new sanctuary. And uh, maybe they were just feeling rebellious, but they put a baptismal pool in the new sanctuary that they built. And after a couple of years went by, they, somebody said, well, we have a baptismal pool, shouldn't we use it? And um, so they put the water in it, fired the jets up, um, and asked if anybody, you know, we're having a service Sunday night, if anybody would like to come forward for baptism, we'd be happy to do that. And so I was one of the ones who said, you know what? I would like to, I was 16 years of age. And uh, I wanted the world to know that I loved my Savior, that I was trusting in Him for my salvation, and that I was committed to living my life for Him. With complete respect for whatever tradition you have been raised in, and mine was different as well. My simple appeal to you is to hear the voice of the Lord calling you to come and to let the world know that you love the Lord Jesus, that you're trusting in him for the forgiveness of your sins, and that you're committed to living for him. Would you open your hearts to that message? Let's bow our heads together. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that week in and week out you push us. We thank you that your Holy Spirit reminds us of where you're at and where we need to be and how our lives need to align with you. And so, Lord, we hear this message today, and there may be some among us who have been kind of this way and that way, not really sure on this issue of baptism, not sure if we're ready. Or may we see it for what it is today, that it is our act of obedience, Lord, that it is our declaration to the world that we love you, we trust you, we're committed to you. Holy Spirit, we ask that as we share these elements today, remind us of your broken body and your shed blood, that your Holy Spirit would stir in our hearts, would stir some of us to action if that's what we need. Lord, we just want to walk in obedience to you. We want more of you in our lives. 
So, God, we just ask that you'd speak to us in these quiet moments. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.